Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker and film lover's perspective. My name's Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be reflecting on the films that we've discussed on this podcast so far, as well as some of the other films that we've watched in 2023. Most of what we're going to be talking about is stuff we've already discussed So there's full-length episodes out there to get a little bit more. We kind of just wanted to maybe revisit some of the thoughts we had on what we've discussed. And it's very common this time of year for people to make lists. I think we wanted to kind of make a list of our favorite selections that were made by the opposite person. So I would pick a top three that you picked for discussion on this podcast, and you would pick a top three that I picked for this podcast. Like you said, uh, I think we'll be giving our top three of each other's picks and kind of highlighting a little bit of what made it great for us. If I can remember. I have my letterboxed list pulled up right next to me. That's how I'm going to do this. Yeah, and and I kind of wanted it to be a situation where we had to pick from each other's list because personally, I think I picked the better films for discussion on this podcast. Now, arguably, I may have also picked some of the worst. I'm going to just wear that feather in my cap and be proud of it. Why don't we uh, cover what films each of us had picked? We've covered 20 films over the course of this year, just given some of the breaks that we've had and the timing. Our debut episode was Metropolis. I also had Terrorizers from Edward Yang, Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden, After Sun. My contribution to our Trash Cinema Month was Miami Connection, No Bears, Synecdoche, New York, It Comes at Night, The Descent, and Nine Days. Okay, that's a pretty good list, Joe. So Justin, tell us uh, what films were your selections. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Tai Ming Liang's Rebels of the Neon God, Emma Seligman's Shiva Baby, Andy Sedaris's Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Uh, I do expect to see that on your list, Joe. Don't hold your breath. Billy Woodbury's Bless Their Little Hearts, Werner Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Andrei Zulowski's Possession, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife, and then Charles Pokel's Christmas Again. So, I mean, you know, this isn't a competition, Joe. But I definitely uh, won. I don't I don't believe in competition in art. I would never believe in that type of thing. But if this was a competition, I think it's pretty clear who won. I mean, I picked Mahal Drive. <laughs> I, I knew that you were going to hang your hat on that one. I mean... And I, and I get it. I mean, Mulholland Drive, David Lynch, it's got its following. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a that's a pretty great film. 
Yeah, what's funny is I'm the one who hated Mulholland Drive on the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you hated it. That's not fair to say. You didn't hate it. I don't want to get us started on a negative foot here. But if we look back and if we think about the films that we've covered on this podcast, some of those films that are maybe a little bit more widely loved and regarded were films that maybe didn't always work for us. I, I think, you know, Synecdoche, New York... We don't have to look much further than that. Um, a film that I I really did love initially, looking back on it, it, it didn't have that punch the way that it used to. I think at least for the two of us, what we like, what we respond to is probably different than what a lot of people like and respond to. Um, and I'll bring that up again at the end of the episode. But should we get started? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and give us your number three pick from my selection? Okay. My number three pick is, should we reveal, I'm stretching this out as long as possible, should we reveal that we've kept this a secret from one another? So we have no idea what the other person picked. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that would just make it more interesting. My number three pick is Jafar Panahi's No Bears. This is a film that... What I responded to most was how Panahi was able to include so many ideas, so many themes. They all kind of just fit and it integrated well. You know, that's something that I criticized Synecdoche, New York for. And it's something I think I criticized other films for as well, about trying to bite off more than they could chew. And Panahi seems to know what the balance is. You know, and he finds that balance and he rides that balance and it's about a lot, but it's about all of them sort of all at once and it kind of comes together and creates this bigger whole that I think just works perfectly. The restrained filmmaking, the naturalistic performances, I mean, specifically by Panahi, I think is exceptional. And above all else, I mean, it's made me want to really dive into his filmography and will actually discuss him a little bit later as well. I talked about this on the No Bears episode, but it was a film that I had intention of watching for a long time and and a film that I really wanted to go out of the way for. But unfortunately, you know, things kept coming up to prevent that. And when I was able to finally experience it, it was it was so much more than what I had thought or hoped it would be. I love the melding of Panahi's personal story with the life of this little like village that he found himself in and the disruption that he causes in a way unintentionally. It's just great storytelling, I felt. So Joe, what is your number three pick? I I don't know if this one should really count because I did sort of peer pressure you into this one a little bit. Oh, I I don't buckle under peer pressure, so... I'm not at all affected by that. You buckle under peer pressure all the time. What are you talking about? That's why we're doing a podcast together. Uh, So I'm going to go with Aguirre, The Wrath of God. And this is actually a little bit of a surprising pick for me. When you initially talked about doing this film for the podcast, it was a film that I was very hesitant on. And I didn't expect to come away with it the way that I did. We talked about it on the episode. Herzog is kind of a blind spot for me in the grand scheme of things. I've seen some of his work, but not much. He's done a lot of work. Yeah. Could probably end up spending all of 2024 just trying to get caught up. I I think that this one kind of touched me for more reasons than just Herzog's filmmaking, which I will talk about in a minute. But Edward Yang has credited this movie as sort of that film that kind of made him see what was possible with film. 
And I understand that. And that's saying something given the fact that film has come a long way since Aguirre the Wrath of God came out and Edward Yang's time. And I feel like there's just so much more that happens in films now visually and stylistically. There tends to be this lack of practical nature to it, which, you know, Herzog's Aguirre the Wrath of God is in your face with just how much practicality there is in every scene. If nothing else, I could rewatch that film listening to the commentary and just getting Herzog's insight on shooting in the elements, the challenges, and it it really does feel like a film that filmmakers should seek out, explore, and especially the commentary to just listen to an auteur talk about his process. Yeah, I think we discussed a little bit about the practicality of going to this place, going to Peru, shooting this film on the actual river and putting your actors on a raft on the river, putting your actors in the jungle, and you're not faking it. We discussed that, I think, probably at length during the full-length episode, but that's the thing that sticks out to me. And it sticks out to me because of what filmmaking has become. And there's obviously advantages to these new tools that filmmakers have at their disposal. It's not all bad, but there are consequences to that. And one of the consequences is that nothing feels real or tangible. There's a discussion about ethics and you know responsibility here, but nothing feels dangerous anymore. And this film is about characters in danger, and it feels dangerous, and that's appropriate for the film, and that's what makes the film work. Honestly, Joe, I was expecting you to kind of hate Aguirre when I picked it. I was thinking you weren't. it wasn't going to work for you, partly because there was so much pressure on it with the Edward Yang connection. And also, it's not my favorite Herzog film. So, you know, I just was expecting maybe it to be a kind of a dud, but I'm glad it worked for you. I think we'll see more of Herzog in the future. The last thing I'll say surrounding this film and in closing is it's such an interesting character study, too, because it's a film that challenges the audience to connect with and empathize ultimately like somebody who would generally be presented as an antagonist in a film. The way that the film is centered around Klaus Kinski and that performance in it is just fantastic. Number two. My number two, Edward Yang's The Terrorizers. Let's avoid more debate about the title. Because hindsight's always twenty twenty. Can I just tell you and the audience how disappointed I am that when I think about that episode, we spent so much time bickering and debating something so stupid, and we we really probably left a lot on the table when it comes to the actual film. I think we've done that with a few episodes. Anyway, it's no secret that both of us love Edward Yang. Uh, I think Joe has brought up Yang every episode of this podcast. It doesn't happen naturally. He'll just force it in at the end. But this was a film, despite that love, that when we first watched it, I was more critical of it than I think I expected. Um, But it is the film that has stuck with me the most out of any film that we've discussed, even more than another film that we'll discuss later. It's grown on me in my mind. I unfortunately have not revisited it, but I will at some point, and I, I think I will many times 
moving forward. It's going to be a film that I return to quite frequently when when the time is right. I feel like all of my complaints during the episode are no longer important. It's a film that the things that do work work so well and they overshadow anything else. And um, I'll be honest, the thing that sticks with me the most is the filmmaking. I think we discussed that there wasn't necessarily a lot to kind of latch onto when it comes to character. And there's something I think intentional about that. But what sticks with me or because of that, what sticks with me is the filmmaking, the restrained quality of it, the use of static shots, the use of long takes, the use of camera movement when it is called for, when when the scene held off to that very moment to use that camera movement, to pull that camera movement out, heightens sort of the meaning and, and the purpose and the, the effect of that camera movement. I think The Terrorizers is one of the films that if you're going to look at how a film is crafted and study how a film is crafted, I think of the films we've discussed, there's a lot of good candidates for that. But I think at the top of my list would be Terrorizers, just because of how every shot is composed, the shot size, you know, whether it's a close-up or a wide shot, and then how camera movement is used, I think is, I think it's like a masterclass in film direction. I'm not above admitting when I'm wrong. I think back on that episode and the critiques I had of the film, like you highlighted, I, I'm in agreement. I think I'm wrong. I will fully acknowledge. I, I think I was wrong. This is a film that I really want to actually go and, and revisit, probably as much as any other film that we discussed. So yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm glad that this actually did make your top three. I always say that I will judge each movie on its own merits and take each film for what it is. But I think we both fell into this trap with this film where Yee Yee and to maybe a lesser extent, A Brighter Summer Day means so much to us that we went in expecting something like that. And that's completely unfair to expect a filmmaker to deliver that every time. And I think honestly, part of it was we were let down because we had this expectation and we were comparing it unfairly to something like Yee Yee. You're absolutely right about that because this film on its own merits is fantastic. Okay, Joe, what is your number two pick? Well, I'm not sure that this really counts as your pick because (laughs) I peer pressured you into it. My number two pick, and this one actually might surprise you, I'm going to go with Christmas again. Yeah, Um, you definitely pressured me into this. Yeah, so Christmas Again, this was a film that I went into, one, never having heard of it, but two, not having any expectations. And even, you know, despite not having expectations, I I was kind of blown away by this one. It's a film that will definitely make my Christmas rotation, but you could very easily see this story translating into any number of like situations, seasons, what, what have you. And... It's such an interesting presentation of of character. So this is, you know, the second time now of my picks that I I bring up character. I used the term mundane when we when we previously talked about this film, but just seeing the day-to-day life of an individual struggling with being dropped kind of 
in the middle of a time in their life where they are struggling with something and and the something matters, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not what truly counts. And the way that the film depicts somebody who I guess would, would be forgettable to the people that they serve and really spending time and focusing on that. Sean Price Williams does an amazing job just capturing some of those great moments. Of of all the films that we've covered, this one has one of my top like three favorite almost ending scenes. And I say almost because it's not the exact ending, but it should have been the ending. This is a film that can work in July, because like I said, I watched it for the first time in July. But it's also a film that captures very succinctly the feel of the holiday season, both the sort of good and the sort of more melancholy moments of that. Uh, I What I liked is the relationship between Noel and Lydia and how the film gives you the kind of hallmark moments, but it conveys them or portrays them in a way that doesn't feel artificial. And because this is the thing that stands out to me the most in a film, whether it's done well or it's done poorly, is the way exposition is handled in this film. And the fact that we don't get things spelled out to us, we don't get long expository monologues. Any film that resists that urge or that expectation is a film that I have tremendous respect for. Justin, tell us what is your number one Joe selection for scene by scene? Do you expect me to make a joke? I'm tempted to make a joke. Just make the joke. You can't set us up like that and not, not make the joke. I won't make the joke. So you did talk about earlier how, you know, you are wrong about things and you're willing to admit that. I am willing to admit that I was wrong as well. Synecdoche, New York. <laughs> You're cracking wise about this, but I want to highlight something for you. As I'm looking at the list of films that we covered, I gave Metropolis a 4.5, but then I look at other films that I definitely liked and appreciated more, like my number three and number two picks, even Rebels of the Neon God, which I really liked. All of them got four, and I I would rather watch any of these than watch Metropolis again. The star rating situation is interesting because, well, with you, I think we started out and you felt like you had to like this film. I mean, we both were honest about our complaints during the episode, but then at the end of the episode, you're like, yeah, despite all that, it's an important film, so I'm going to give it a four and a half. But I think you were under this assumption that we had to be positive and we had and it's a respected film, you have to, you don't want to lose respect or something. I don't know. And star ratings will come up again later because I'm going to talk about another film that I strongly disliked, but I gave it a 2.5. So, uh, you know, sometimes star ratings aren't necessarily line up perfectly with how we actually feel. Um, And that's why we talk about the movies as well, rather than just giving ratings, all right, I think. We've been building this up, and we've been building towards Justin's number one, which I assume is actually not Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, I mean, but here's the thing. This is going to be boring, because I think you know what it is. If anybody has actually been listening to every episode, they would know what it is. I I don't think there's a mystery here. It is Charlotte Wells' After Sun. So one of the reasons behind not picking our own films 
and the method to the madness here is because After Sun would also be my number one. This film is fantastic, but it's your pick. Tell us about it. Since you said that, I will reveal if we could pick our own films, After Sun would still be my number one. At least my number three would be different. Maybe my number two would be different, but After Sun would stay at the top either way. You win, Joe. <laughs> Tell us about After Sun, and then I I want to know more about this. What is there to say about After Sun? <laughs> I feel unprepared for this. I did say earlier that the Terrorizers kind of leaps ahead of this in terms of the film that stuck with me the most. That wasn't meant to be a slight on After Sun, because After Sun is the film that affected me emotionally the most out of anything we've discussed it is the thing that stuck with me the most in terms of story and thinking about the story in my head and and replaying the story in my head you know that's not necessarily the experience i have with the terrorizers after sun is something that as much as we analyze the filmmaking and as much as i think the filmmaking is perfect and the editing is masterful when i think about the film all that just kind of falls away it's not a film i've revisited but it's a film that I've kept thinking about and thinking about. There are things in my personal life that have happened since we've talked about this film that have affected the way I think about this movie and the way I think about the relationship with the father. So in that way, it was working perfectly before, and now it's working sort of even better in my mind than it, than it did before. But also the filmmaking is just so fucking good. So I don't know. I mean, again, I want to urge viewers to go actually listen to these episodes because I think maybe I'm a little bit more articulate in the episode about how I feel and, and why I liked it. I just feel like somewhat removed, but also I'm trying to fit everything I want to say into a couple minutes and it's maybe not going as well as I would like. I mean, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, we ended up talking about After Sun for at least five hours, if I'm not mistaken. It was a pretty continuous conversation. So just to kind of put it out there for the listeners, and I'm sure that a lot of them have maybe picked up on this, but we do edit for time and content. And After Sun is one of those discussions that Justin and I had as many conversations about that film for us that I think is important and that for for him and I to connect to the story, to the characters, to the filmmaking, it really does, it does warrant somebody to go back and listen to our full discussion on it. And admittedly, like all of these films, that's why, you know, I guess this is kind of the starter pack of if you're just finding us or if there's episodes that, you know, we would recommend, these really are the ones and these are the films to to seek out and listen to our discussion on. Justin made the joke about how I make an excuse to mention Edward Yang in every episode. And the reason, honestly, for that is that Yang is a, a huge inspiration. The films, like his films that I, and again, acknowledging there are some I haven't seen, Yang's films to me are, are the types of films that I want to make, that I want to see others making, that I, I want to go out of my way to watch. After Sun is that film. What Charlotte Wells did here, this is exactly the type of film that I want to see. This is the type of film that I aspire to make. To me, that film is perfect. It really is perfect to me. Joe, since you can't pick After Sun as your number one, 
what is in your number one spot? It is bless their little hearts. So for context, and I think that it's important that our listeners know and understand how this podcast really like came to fruition. It was discussion of, you know, we, we just want to watch films that we haven't seen and we we want to talk about them. And, you know, there's there's more to it than that. But, you know, that was that was an element. And much like Christmas Again, Bless Their Little Hearts was a film that I had never heard of. I had no expectations on. I didn't know that this film existed. And I am very grateful to Justin for bringing this one to the table shot beautifully in in black and white highlighting the the struggle of of a family this is the episode where where i really just like focus on like character the way that the film starts with charlie like in the unemployment office and this is how we introduce a character and not only that but the scenes that follow really establishing the world the struggle that he has really it feels like filmmaking 101 but Everything that comes after is perfectly established because of this. It all builds towards just this great moment between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife that are both kind of in this space and they're struggling to get by. And and there's something just like really raw and emotional about how the film builds to that. It's, It's a film that I don't think necessarily cares about all of the technical responsibilities or the technical aspects and the film is so much better for that i use the term raw to describe it and i feel that in the filmmaking as well this is a film that does just feel so humanistic it feels like a filmmaker has complete empathy for its subjects and cares deeply about its subjects And saying that isn't saying that the filmmaker condones the subject's actions or even that the the filmmaker likes the subjects, but it just means he has respect for them and he has compassion for them. And I think as a filmmaker, you need that. And I think this is a film that, that is so sort of like well observed. I think Woodbury has a understanding of, of people specifically the, this type of person and you see that on screen. And like you said, I mean, there's there's filmmaking things in here that are like worth studying. And I think it's a shame that people don't look at films like this as worthy of study. Acknowledging that part of this is a taste thing, but in film school, you don't discuss films like this necessarily, unless you're discussing their context within film history or something. But you don't talk about the actual filmmaking of them. And then, you know, you get outside of film school and people are talking about whatever's popular in the moment so it's superhero movies or it's um big expensive blockbusters by auteur filmmakers like a nolan or um spielberg yeah and so again not saying that those films aren't worthy of study as well but it's a shame that like these things fall through the cracks and never seem to be examined for their actual filmmaking craft because i think there's a lot to take away storytelling wise filmmaking wise in a film like this there's something about i would say all six of the films that we picked but i think it really stands out for me with bless their little hearts there is something timeless about this story as well it was made in 1983 
but the themes and the story feel just as relevant and pertinent today as I imagine that they would have in 83. So those are our top three. Justin, you said that number one would have been After Sun regardless, but your two and three would likely have changed. What would they have changed to? Well, Bless Their Little Hearts would have made the list for sure. And then potentially Christmas Again would have made my list. I think you can see a lot of connections between Christmas Again and Bless Their Little Hearts. In the rawness, to steal the word from you, in the character-focused filmmaking. So those two are at the top of my list for things we've discussed, because that's the stuff that means the most to me, that just aligns with my taste the most. I wish I could have fit a couple more of those types of things on this roster of 20 films. We'll get to them eventually. But I just, I really love the Terrorizers, and it means so much to me. So if I really had to choose, it probably would be number one, after Sun, number two, Bless Their Little Hearts, and number three, The Terrorizers. But it would be close with Christmas Again, kind of right on the Terrorizers tail there. I don't know. Would your list have changed at all? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. After Sun would be number one. I don't know that it would have changed that much. But let me let me say this. I think that we, we have covered some great films. And I, I know you have something that you want to add here, but I just want to highlight like two films that I really liked that were your selections that didn't make my list were Shiva Baby. And I know I kind of did have a little bit of an influence on you because I kind of poked at you that, yeah, you should probably see that. And you you eventually caved. But Shiva Baby is, is a great film that demonstrates this amazing technique of this drama being made very much like a horror film and it, and it just highlights this amazing amount of tension within a, a family gathering and then it's one of those films that in hindsight I, I may not have been as positive about but rebels of the neon god that's a film that i absolutely want to go back and, and revisit so it was tough to kind of narrow it down because i do feel like we've we've covered some some great films on here we have. And I was just going to add that I think it's a shame a film like Shiva Baby doesn't get a little discussion, but then you you brought it up. So I guess I don't need to say much, but that's a film that I think if the list was what films did we discuss that brought you the most enjoyment, Shiva Baby would be number one. It's a film that works really well, but it also had me laughing in a way that I rarely do during movies any other honorable mentions that you'd want to put out there i tossed out my two i think the handmaiden is an exceptionally crafted film yes i think it is park chan wook's best film it is a film that i guess the way i was kind of talking about the terrorizers recommending a film to somebody in which they are going to study the craft how the shots connect what the shots are the composition of the shots static camera movement how the film is constructed the handmaiden would be a good film to do that with as well i think it is on a technical level you know sort of perfectly crafted and a storytelling perspective as well telling a story from multiple perspectives i think works really well so yeah i mean that would be an honorable mention we've covered 20 films on this podcast over the course of 2023 but we do enjoy films outside of the podcast uh some more than others but justin what's something that you watched in 2023 one or two films that 
you want to get people out there to watch that you watch that you loved or really worked for you? What What is that film or what are those films? I think I want to preface this conversation a little bit. I haven't actually watched that much this year looking at my letterboxd. Um, I think it's a couple things. It's trying to edit a film. It's this podcast has certainly affected it to a certain degree and, you know, just things in my personal life. And then on top of that, I was looking at what I've watched this year and I've watched a lot of bad stuff. I don't really have a lot to choose from, I feel. And then also, I mean, when we were talking about doing this, we did want to say anything you watched. I, at this time of year, everybody's doing their top films of 2023. And you helped me out, Joe, and said, well, it doesn't have to be from 2023 because you haven't seen that many things. And that's actually pretty common for me. So this is stuff that's from whenever, right? My pick is loosely related to the podcast because it's something that I watched around the time that we were prepping for the No Bears episode. I watched this on Criterion Channel. It is still on there as of this recording. I watched Jafar Panahi's The White Balloon. I watched this on April 29th. This is the film that I would I would recommend to people. I think this is actually better than No Bears for me, but this is early in his career. This is his first feature. So this film is about this this little girl, Razia, who is played by Ida Muhammad Kahani, eight-year-old girl. She wants money to buy this uh, specific goldfish, and she's kind of pestering her mom for the money to buy this goldfish. Her mom says it's too much money. Eventually, she gets the money, but then loses the money several times throughout the film. But the last time she drops the money in a grate outside of the goldfish store and she can see it and she's just trying to recover it. And the rest of the film is just her trying to find a way to recover this money to buy this goldfish. And it's her asking adults. A lot of the adults just blow her off or some just completely ignore her. Don't even acknowledge that she's speaking. Um, but that's the whole story. Very simple. But really what stands out is the way Panahi shoots her face um, and her performance. She's eight years old, but the way you can see the pain in her eyes, the way you can see the joy in her eyes, the moment where her mom finally caves and is like, okay, you can get the goldfish. The smile that comes across her face and the joy that's in her eyes, it practically brought me to tears. I just think it's uh, so powerful because it's so simple. And, you know, this is an exploration of Iranian society. It's about, I think, the, the struggle to obtain money. This is before Panahi started exploring women's place in Iranian society, the, the woman's struggle in this society. But it shows his affinity for marginalized groups right from the beginning. In this case, it's a child who is at best ignored and at worst is like actively manipulated and exploited by adults. So it's tackling a lot, but I think it's also a celebration of the human spirit and it's uplifting. And there's like a great ending, which I find to be the case with so many Iranian films. It's, it's worth noting also that the, the screenplay is by Abbas Kurastami. This is the thing that I would recommend. Is this a stay tuned? Uh, yeah, it might be. I always get nervous because like, I, if I really like something, you know this feeling. <laughs> if you really like something, you're like, oh no. What if we end up tearing it apart? I did see something you had in your honorable mentions that I might echo, but 
uh, you go ahead. What would you recommend to people? Before I get into my recommendations, I do want to say that right about now is the time that I actually do my catch up for for the year. Justin and I are a little bit different. I do, and not saying that you don't, but I do try to focus a little bit more on what came out this year and try to catch some of the films that I, that interest me or you know certain filmmakers that I'd really like to seek out this year partially because of the film that we worked on partially because you know hey we we launched this podcast this year and just among other things um you made reference to like some something in your personal life I had something in my personal life that hindered my film watching this year as well so I'm I'm further behind at this point than I normally would like to be. Several movies I'm looking forward to that I haven't seen yet. The Holdovers, uh, Godzilla Minus One. I'm also a Miyazaki fan, so Boy and the Heron. I have an appreciation for Yorgos Lathamos, so Poor Things is on the list. Also, I've heard a lot of praise, and I, I know it's kind of like a 2022 film, but still some like 2023 spillover uh, showing up by Kelly Reichardt. So there's there's a lot, but the film that, and to put the caveat on it, um, you know, Justin and I discussed this had to be a film that we did not cover on the podcast. If After Sun was like the best debut feature I have maybe ever seen, Celine Song's Past Lives, for me at least, is not that far behind. This was a film that, when it came out, was going through a personal life situation that prevented me from catching a lot of films. And before I knew it, it was out of theater. So very similar to my No Bears situation, it was a film that I had to wait, and I kept waiting, and I, w- I was not disappointed the core of past lives relationship with two children who basically have this friendship, maybe even love each other. They lose connection because one of them moves away, but there's still this connection and this emotion and this idea of Inyun and the the soulmate element. I, I would say that also there's there's a complicated nature to it too, because the film deals with a woman who is is married and that childhood like sweetheart friend who has you know basically never stopped thinking of her kind of comes in and and sort of disrupts the life a little bit it culminates in some just like great scenes towards the end of the film they're sitting at this bar with the woman's husband and it is just a fantastic mixture of incredibly sweet, touching, moving, seeing this relationship of this lost love, and also mixed with an intercut with the most uncomfortable situation for Greta Lee's husband. I loved the way that that scene kind of just like made me feel everything all at once. We saw this in a theater in Philadelphia while we were on vacation. I liked it too. I didn't quite like it as much as you. I think there were some things that didn't work for me as well. The thing that stood out to me the most was each of these three characters is given so much respect. You could have easily seen a version of this film in which the husband character is treated as an obstacle or treated as even a villain in a way because he's standing in the way of this true love, this relationship that is meant to happen and he's the obstacle. 
And I don't think the film ever treats him like that. I mean, he is sort of tasked with handling some very complex emotions where his wife is kind of putting someone else above him. He is aware of their history. You can see that there's frustration there. There's some jealousy there, but he's also being supportive. And, you know, clearly he loves his wife, but he's also being supportive to the extent that he's being when the two guys are alone. You know, he's being nice and he's trying to be friendly and ask him questions and get to know him, making small talk. You see these conflicting emotions specifically because of the performances. They play out in a way that feel completely believable and natural. There were a couple films, and I know you said that you didn't really have anything else, but um, I do want to kind of toss out an honorable mention here. And it's a film that I've seen before many times. But this year, I actually sat down and watched Yee Yee with the uh, Edward Yang commentary. It was an experience I was happy I committed the time to. Like, I I love Yee Yee. I think it's Yang's masterwork. Um, I adore everything about that film. But to actually hear him talk about it, I always knew Yee Yee was special. But until hearing him talk about it and just how many things that were happy accidents or they just found in the moment and how things just came together organically with that film. I just, it helps enhance that experience. But there's also two shorts that I want to call out. And I don't think that short films are really necessarily given enough time, credit, or attention. I watched both of these because they tied into an episode that we did. I want to start with Simon Liang's The Night. This is an experimental short that maybe the better way of looking at it is it's an unconventional by Western audience standards. I I watched this on Mubi. It's the series of just setting up a camera, shooting something. And I say something because it's not an individual. It's not an actor. He just sets a camera basically on like a street somewhere in Hong Kong, and he just shoots it and he just lets it roll. And there's music put to it. It's just a series of scenes in different locations. While this may sound boring or uninteresting to a lot of listeners, I found it actually very captivating because it gives you a view and a look and a perspective at a different place, somewhere that you may never go, someplace that you may never have experienced, experiencing this moment that was occurring right here in this time. My second honorable mention is Charlotte Wells' Tuesday. This was clearly watched in preparation for our After Sun episode. Tuesday follows the story of this girl who basically is like supposed to go and spend the night at her father's it's it really is just like the progression of this day into the night and what wells demonstrates and captures in after sun i think that this was the foundation for it sometimes when you look at a director's like short film history before they make their their feature you can really just see their talent on full display the controlled nature of their film this is absolutely that. Justin, I believe you did watch Tuesday. Yeah, apart from things covered on the podcast, Tuesday is my second favorite thing that I watched all year. 
It is a film that is completely experiential in the sense that we just spend time with her and we're placed in her life, the singular Tuesday of her life. You see all the filmmaking tools that Wells would use in After Sun to convey the passage of time, to highlight and emphasize the the small moments in life, the the commonly referred to as the the boring, the mundane, and and elevating them to sort of grand, worthy moments. It's expertly directed, it's expertly edited. Because it's so short, I mean, I don't think there's any excuse to not just give it a shot. We've talked a lot about what worked for us. You know, and and I think that our listeners kind of know that we have been trying to be a little bit more positive. We did hit a a patch there where maybe we were down on, on films a little bit more. But we do try to bring more of an analytical approach. Not everything works for us. And I'll be the first to acknowledge I like things that... Other people definitely don't like, just like other people like things that I don't like. Even Justin and I, we had a few instances where we we disagreed on on certain elements of films here. So point being, film is subjective. We have things that we don't like. Justin, what's something that you watched in 2023 that maybe didn't work for you? Yeah, this was tough for me because I I did say I watched a lot of things that weren't great this year. But I was tempted to go with the thing that I rated the lowest on Letterboxd. I gave one film a half a star this year. And that was during the Halloween season, I was going through all of the The Hills Have Eyes films, the original and the remakes. The Hills Have Eyes 2 from 2007, I gave half a star. I considered highlighting this because it was the lowest rated. Really, it just comes down to it's a loud, aggressive, brutal, mean film, and it's in service of nothing. That being said, the film I actually want to talk about is a film that I rated two and a half stars on Letterboxd. So it's a better film in that sense, but it's a film that stuck with me more and bothered me in a, in a different way, in a more impactful way. I can kind of just forget about The Hills Have Eyes too. I'll probably never think about it again. I'll actually probably forget that I've even seen it in a couple months. But this film uh, will stick with me for the reasons that I did not like it. And that is Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, which I watched at the beginning of the year, I, January 9th. And it's it stuck with you in a negative way all through the year. It did, yeah. So, you know, there's a conversation surrounding this film. And whether it is fat phobic, whether it's not... Then there's the obvious response from a substantial portion of the internet that just responds with, you know, fat phobia is not a thing. I think that is probably the stupidest response possible. I mean, it's dismissive. It also just completely shuts down all conversation, all potential conversation. So there's a lot of conversation in that area. I do think there's definitely some gawking involved, particularly a moment where he has to take off his shirt. I think what really is happening here is despite the fact that Aronofsky is claiming that, you know, Charlie is treated with empathy, it's that the film either wants us to look at Charlie in disgust or the film expects us to look at Charlie in disgust so that the film can then teach us that it's not okay to judge people based on the way they look. I don't need a movie to tell me that. And also that approach is inherently 
insensitive and disrespectful in itself. I just wish Charlie was treated as more than just a overweight guy. This is where I wanted to reference Synecdoche, New York. The bigger issue, or the second issue I have with this film, besides the fact that I don't think the film is as sensitive as it needs to be to tackle this subject, is that Aronofsky's filmmaking is just so heavy-handed and abrasive at times, and I just don't think he's fully aware of what his filmmaking is communicating at times. I think he could have good intentions, but I just don't think he's aware that some of these very blunt, over-the-top approaches can actually give the opposite impression, if that makes sense. The way Synecdoche, New York felt very obvious and heavy-handed and lacked all subtlety, that's how I feel about this film, and it's how I feel about most of Aronofsky's films. And this is maybe a stay tuned, but I want to revisit The Wrestler because I feel like I need to reevaluate my appreciation for that film because I'm I'm wondering if that thing is not exactly what I think it is after all these years. I, have you seen this, Joe? Uh, I, I actually haven't. It's a film that I definitely had some curiosity surrounding. I think that the awards buzz for Brendan Fraser kind of heightened that a little bit. It's it's one of those films that, you know, I, I have on a watch list, but I'm not necessarily going out of my way to pursue right now. I think Brendan Fraser is good in it. To be completely honest, I think he's let down by the filmmaking. I mean, whether you feel Aronofsky's direction is heavy-handed and whether that's your opinion or not, you have to acknowledge there's certain subjects that just require a lighter touch and they require a sensitive touch and, and a filmmaker that maybe is a little bit more subtle, I guess. And, and Aronofsky is just not that. And I just wonder if he was the best choice. And again, I mean, this is based on a play and maybe it works better as a play. Maybe it doesn't. But my gut is that Aronofsky is maybe not the right choice for this material. I have an odd takeaway from this is that we will eventually cover The Wrestler on this podcast, a, a film that I actually really, really enjoyed. Of everything I've seen from Aronofsky, I, I would probably put that as my favorite of his films. So maybe I don't want us to do it. Maybe it's just one of those films that I want to let live in this <laughs> this positive zone of appreciation. Yeah. But don't you want to know also? I mean, I get it, but also a little bit. Don't you want to like, or would you prefer now to go back and never have watched Synecdoche, New York for this show? No, I'm happy with that decision and to reflect on how my taste has changed and, and how I've grown. I see like 12 films listed here, so... I'm going to just bring up one honorable mention. I know that when this movie came out, there's there's a lot of people that really defended it and really like it. Uh, people have highlighted it as, you know, for its creative decisions. Even Guillermo del Toro has come out like praising this film. It's a film that Next to nothing worked for me, honestly, and that's No One Will Save You. Why this didn't work for me beyond just the visuals and it does feel very generic looking creature is it feels very gimmicky to me. So that's my honorable mention. My actual choice, Winnie the Pooh, 
blood and honey. I've said it on this podcast. I can forgive technical issues if you have a story that is captivating and interesting and and if it can draw me in. I can even forgive other things if you have a character that I care about, that I can empathize with. This film has none of this. The main woman that we are following or supposed to care about, all we know about her is she was traumatized by a man entering her bedroom at night. Now, to be clear, that would be a very traumatic experience, but that's all we know about her. There, There is nothing else. There's no character development. There's no understanding of who she is, what she wants. And the film just plays it as she is her trauma. I would have less of a problem with that if anything ever happens or anything's ever done with it. If it's ever about her overcoming it, the film doesn't care about that. Even by horror standards, I can get behind the gore crowd where if you give me this, I'm going to be into it. Gore, give me interesting kills, show me something unique. None of that even happens. Characters are dispatched in 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 ways that we've seen in better films. So are you done with your bad? Yeah. Okay. Joe, I think we wanted to briefly talk about a couple more things. Do you mind getting started? Because this is kind of your idea. Filmmaking advice, lessons learned in 2023. I'm going to kind of paint with a broad brush here. And I do actually kind of attribute a lot of this to you and your selections. And I'm going to kind of reference back to Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and Herzog's commentary track for that. I found that just to be very like reassuring and reinforcing that things aren't necessarily like a one-size-fits-all. And I, and I know, I, I feel like this should just be, well, duh, Joe, of course, we, we know this. I know for me, when it comes to ideas that I'm looking at working on, even when we were prepping the film that we worked on together, I think I just got too focused on some of the traditional methods of, we got a storyboard, we got to get this. And and really it's it's okay to not do those things or yeah it's it's good to have your storyboard so you have a sense of what you're going to shoot but also don't become beholden to them because we talk about it so many times where things just happen naturally or organically on set. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why I liked Christmas again. You're you're just rolling, you're just shooting, you're you're letting actors emote and do their thing and not being afraid to just like set the camera let things roll and not call cut all of this reminds me that i don't need to be perfect it's okay to ignore the conventional methods of of filmmaking and some of those like film school discussions they're they're good guidelines, but you don't have to be handcuffed by them. I think mine is sort of just a reminder, and it's something about being true to yourself, being true to what you like, embracing that. We can relate this to filmmaking, even kind of going off what you just said. There's so many ways to do things. There are no set rules on how a film should be made. You have to find your own way, and we've seen over the course of this podcast this year filmmakers who are 
drastically different than each other. Some storyboards, some don't. Some emphasize improv, some have everything scripted and stick very closely to the script. So whatever it is, it can it can be even more broad than that. Uh, just a way of working with actors or uh, uh, working from intuition or something like that. But you find your own way and you be true to that. I think this also relates to watching movies and discussing movies. We've discussed films on this podcast that I don't like. We've discussed films that I do like. It's helped me reaffirm what is, I think, important to me and what is not important to me. And I did not like Synecdoche, New York, but we obviously know that a lot of people do. And so for them, that's a good film. That film works. Through this podcast, I've discovered that's not for me. Many people have discovered that it is for them. And me saying I have issues with the filmmaking or issues with the lack of subtlety or whatever it is, that's only my opinion, and, and I'm not trying to convince anyone that they are wrong about the film if they like it. If I sometimes act like I don't respect alternative opinions, that's obviously not the case. Um, I think hopefully people can listen to our episode on Synecdoche or our episode on Prince of Darkness and be like, okay, well, that was a good discussion, hopefully, but I completely disagree. So I think this podcast throughout this year has been a reminder of that for me, a reminder of what I like and what I don't like, and a reminder that sometimes watching things you don't like can be beneficial in a way. Right about now is the time of year where people start making resolutions for, for the new year. So, uh, Justin, what's a film resolution that you have in 2024? And I'm still kind of working on this, but I think I need to plan for working on whatever film project I'm working on, you know, whether that is editing or whether that is writing another script. I need to plan out and dedicate a certain amount of time each day or each week where that's what I'm focused on. I have found in the past I've been, it's a combination of procrastination and it's a combination of perfectionism that gets in my way of completing things. This podcast has helped me get over that a little bit where, you know, we're putting something out on a deadline, whether it's perfect in my eyes or not. But my goal was to be better with this current film that we're working on. And I think I've failed miserably at that. I've fallen into old patterns. And I think my solution is I need to schedule chunks of time where everything else is turned off. My phone is off. I block the internet. I can't go on YouTube. I avoid all of the distractions as well as making sure that I'm making progress, whether it's every day or every week and, and how much time that is. That's the part I'm still working on. But that is going to be my resolution is making dedicated time and then sticking to that time so that ultimately I can be more productive. I know that's not a great resolution. It's not, I don't know if it's specific enough at this point to be like a resolution, but that's that's the starting point for me. I think that's a great one. Um, and honestly, something that I, I hear and I'm like, yes, that's that's incredibly relatable. Do you have something for the upcoming year, Joe? Mine's not as thoughtful because mine is just a general, I want to finish the script that I'm working on. Admittedly, you and I work together on projects, but then after we wrap on a project and after, you know, as it's in post, there's a pretty lengthy 
space of time before we're on to our next project. There's been a lot of things that have happened this year or just the last few years in my life where you start to notice and recognize, like, I don't know how much longer I can do certain things. And I want to try to maximize the projects and and not lose quality, of course, but not have some of the gaps that we've had in between projects. And it is time consuming and it, it creates strain on family, friends, spouses, relationships, everything. But with, with that said, you know, I, I want to sit down. I want to focus more getting my, my script. I don't want to say done, but ready to the point that I feel comfortable showing you and, and others. Now, I think that your resolution is something I might borrow from as well, because, you know, I can say I want to get this script done, but if I don't have a plan to actually do it and execute it, that's not any good. I just have this goal and I have no no method or means to get there. So we just want to remind everyone that we will be taking a short hiatus and we will be back on Friday, March 1st with a new episode. That episode will be Christoph Kieslowski's Blue, the start of our Three Colors trilogy discussions. Uh, We just want to thank you for listening to the podcast this last year and we hope that you return with us in March and continue listening. Anything else you want to add, Joe, before we wrap up? I know it's always tough for listeners when a podcast goes on hiatus like this. We are going to be utilizing this time to work on, you know, those film projects. You know, Justin is editing the feature film that he directed. I'm going to be taking some time to write and, and work on this project, but we will be back March 1st Honestly, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back to it, looking at a whole nother year of uh, doing this with you. New films that we haven't seen or maybe seen and revisiting and just, just having these discussions because, yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot over the course of this year. I've experienced different films I would have I would have never seen if not for you. We want to thank you for listening to this end of year discussion. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. This will also be the best way to know when that new episode comes out. If you'd like to support the show, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. Especially now, we have 20 episodes that they can get caught up on in the hiatus. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on any of the films that we discussed this episode, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. And Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And please join us on March 1st for our discussion of Christoph Kieslowski's Blue. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on uh, in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for?
Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know what? No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.